The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. Lupton describes an elderly woman that he meets named Mrs. Smith from his church. He writes, she's 66, dangerously overweight, twice a great-grandmother, and a devoted member of our church. She lives with four generations of extended family in her overcrowded, dilapidated house. But her buoyant spirit is undaunted. Since losing her youngest son in a senseless murder last Christmas Eve, he was shot while riding with his uncle in a taxi cab. She has redirected much of her affection to me. You're my buddy, she says, with a broad, snaggletooth grin. I pray for you every day. Then she gives me a long bear hug. She wants to sit close beside me in every church service. And although the smell of stale sweat and excrement is often nauseating, she makes me feel a little special. She often hints, sometimes blatantly, that she would like to come home with us on a visit. Nothing would delight her more than to have Sunday dinner with my family. But there's a conflict. My greatest fear is that she will want to sit in my new corduroy recliner. I wouldn't want to be rude and cover it with plastic to protect it from urine stains, but I know it would never be the same again. Lupton is moved into the city to follow Jesus, but he can't bring himself to let this woman into his home because she's just too dirty. She smells too bad. And yet, as we follow Jesus, it's inevitable that Jesus will lead us into unsanitary places, messy, uncomfortable. If we hang around Jesus too long, he's going to invite us to join him in these messy places in the company of messy people. And this is exactly what we see as we pick up on the story of Peter. Over the summer, I know that you've been following Peter's discipleship journey. As he's called by Jesus, he sees Jesus do miracles, right? He casts out demons, he feeds the crowds, and he heals the sick. Peter's bold, right? He steps out onto the water, quickly doubts and sinks. He makes the bold claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the Jewish people. But immediately after this claim, he's rebuked by Jesus when Peter can't believe that Jesus needs to suffer and die. We like Peter. He steps out in faith when no one else does. He makes mistakes, and he's disarmingly honest. We can relate to him, especially in tonight's story, the famous passage where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Let me pray for us as we read God's word. Father, I'd like to ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word tonight. Clear our minds and let us hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this story takes place just before Jesus will be arrested, tried, and crucified. So he wants to use this final opportunity with the disciples to pass on the most important information. So I'm going to invite my friend Thomas, who is a worship leader at Global Friends and a fellow UW student, to read scripture for us tonight. Um, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up 
from so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This action would have been unthinkable in their culture. For a respected teacher to lower himself into the role of a servant would be unheard of. The act of foot washing itself was extremely mundane, but it would always have been done by a servant. For Jesus to strip down and clean his disciples' feet is scandalous. It's hard to compare today living in our more egalitarian society, but an analogy would be for a CEO of a big company to clean the toilets of that company, right? That's unheard of. So in verses 6 through 11, we can understand Peter's outraged response. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So when Jesus comes around to wash Peter's feet, Peter responds, no way. Peter respects Jesus way too much to let him humiliate himself in this way. This response tells us a lot about who Peter thinks that Jesus is. Peter, in many ways, gets Jesus. He understands that he's the Messiah, the anointed one predicted in Scripture, who has come from God to make things right in the world. But all along, Peter is expecting a victorious king, a military hero who will unify the Jewish people and free them from Roman oppression. This makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense is a Messiah who will be a suffering servant, who is fully God, but born into the world to identify with all human suffering and sin and shame. This is the mystery of the Incarnation. Now, Incarnation is one of those churchy-sounding words, but it's critical to understand Incarnation means God with us. The incarnation means that God chose to be enfleshed, to lower himself and come alongside us. Jesus, lowering himself to the ground to wash the feet of the disciples, that's an image that helps us understand the incarnation. Don't you love that about Jesus? When I hear this story, there's something about it that's so compelling. It's, it's beautiful. Peter's next response tells us a lot about how Peter understands himself. If Jesus is offering cleansing, Peter wants to make sure that Jesus makes him fully clean. Through this interaction, I think we see Peter's hope that if Jesus washes me, I'll be made right, and then I'm all set. He wants to make sure that he's doing everything right. He's concerned with his sin and his imperfection, and he wants to make sure that everything is in place so that he can follow Jesus correctly. Yet Jesus makes it clear that the foot washing is not what will cleanse Peter. Peter has already been cleansed through his relationship with Jesus and his trust in him. As Jesus continues to teach his disciples, he puts it another way in John 15, 3, 
He says, you are already made clean by the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. So Jesus isn't washing their feet to save them from their sins. And he isn't trying to institute some new ritual of cleansing. The disciples are already cleansed through their relationship with Jesus. So then what is Jesus trying to do here? I think that the action of washing the disciples' feet flowed out of the very heart and nature of Jesus. Jesus saw that they were coming into dinner and that the disciples' feet hadn't been washed. Because Jesus had relationship with the disciples, they spent all their time together. Jesus knew their needs. Jesus quickly stepped into this place of need, a place where he could serve, even though it was a humble role beneath his station as a rabbi. He was able to do this because he knew who he was. He knew that the Father, the God of the universe, had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. From this perspective, looking important to the world or maintaining his honor and dignity as a respected leader didn't mean much at all. What did matter was love. He loved his disciples. He cared intimately for each of them and was willing to touch the dirtiest places in their lives. It's only when we know that we are deeply, deeply loved by God, apart from anything that we ever do, that we can freely choose to follow Jesus into the messy places in our world. I love how Henry Nouwen reflects on the Incarnation. Henry Nouwen was a 20th century Dutch Catholic priest and theologian who spent many years working with the mentally and physically handicapped. Nouwen critiqued the desire that he saw in Western society towards upward mobility. He looked at Jesus, who didn't grasp power, but gave up power to identify with the people that he loved. In response, our call is to live lives of downward mobility rather than upward. Henry Nouwen put it beautifully. In a society in which upward mobility is the norm, downward mobility is not only discouraged, but even considered unwise, unhealthy, or downright stupid. Who will freely choose a low-paying job when a high-paying job is being offered? Who will choose poverty when wealth is within reach? Who will choose the hidden place when there is a place in the limelight? This is the way of downward mobility, the descending way of Jesus. It is the way toward the poor, the suffering, the marginal, the prisoners, the refugees, the lonely, the hungry, the dying, the tortured, the homeless, towards all who ask for compassion. What do they have to offer? Not success, popularity, or power, but the joy and peace of the children of God. This is the call to downward mobility. It's modeled by Jesus as he washed his disciples' feet. Now try to really picture it. Jesus is getting down on the floor, placing himself below all of the disciples. Is this the image that you usually have when you think of Jesus? When you picture God, where do you picture him? Is he up there, kind of an old man, king, floating up in the sky? I mean, that's, that's often what I think. But one of the last memories that the disciples would have of Jesus before he died was Jesus lowering himself, dirtying his hands on their filthy feet. This action, this model of the leader being a servant, was incomprehensible at this point to Peter. And if we're honest, it's not something that we understand very well either. We can spend our whole lives in church, going to Sunday school, listening to talks, but we can miss the very heart of God. At least that's how it was for me. So I grew up in the church, Christian family, even went to Christian school for high school. Anyone else here go to Christian school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you survived. My life was good, right? It was middle class, comfortable. 
I did well in school, got accepted into a good college, and at 18, my life was going really well. I had a dream. You might think this is a funny dream, but I had a dream of becoming a professor of classics one day, preferably at an Ivy League campus where I could spend my days surrounded by beautiful old books in a Harry Potter-esque library, absorbed in the ancient world, spending as little time in reality as possible. I wanted a clean, tidy environment to surround myself in a world that I could make sense of. So here's a fun fact about me. I was an absolute clean freak growing up. As an only child of an only child, my Japanese grandmother would follow me around carrying wet wipes and like cleaning every surface that I would come in contact with, which is why I think I have a lot of allergies now. But that aside, I adopted this practice for myself. And in my elementary school lunches, I would carry wet wipes and clean the seat and clean the table. Yeah, this was a weird thing to do. Um, and it didn't help that my dad was a doctor, and he would come home from conferences telling us about the latest flesh-eating diseases. I wouldn't even stick a toe in a hot tub for years. Hot tubs are festering pools of disease. I'm just trying to warn you. There's something living in there that can actually eat your flesh. Like, it's something out of a horror movie. So if you, if you take nothing else away from this talk, please, I've warned you, stay away from hot tubs. So here I was, coming into college with my perfect life plan, several bottles of hand sanitizer, and a plan to live in the library. Sure, I wanted to follow Jesus, and I assumed that following Jesus would even give me an extra edge on doing well in my classes and living a successful life. I had the benefit of being able to pray before an exam, and God would help me do better on it. At that point in my life, looking back, I realized that I thought that my dreams for what I thought would be a successful, meaningful life were God's dreams. Like Peter, I looked to a Messiah that I thought would bring about all of my hopes and dreams, not a suffering servant who calls us to imitate him. It took a life-changing event for this view to change. At the end of my freshman year, I took a risk and decided to go on a two-week urban mission trip to inner-city Portland, one of the roughest neighborhoods in the entire country. No, you know that's not true. But for me, that was a huge step out of my comfort zone, right? Going to Portland. Uh, I signed up for two weeks of service among the poor, volunteering to clean the homes of the elderly and to work with at-risk youth in an after-school program. Actually, I didn't really even want to go. The urban project didn't sound appealing to me at all, and I had no plan to attend. I told my friends, that's just not my thing. God doesn't call me to that sort of thing. Until a guy that I had a big crush on signed up, and suddenly I felt God's call. <laughs> Amazing how that works, right? I think some of you have been there. So now here it, up here uh, is a photo of me in college, <laughs> along with some of my friends on this mission trip. You can tell we had a lot of style. You might not even be able to tell who I am. It's fuzzy, and I look a little different, but that's me right there with the P for Polly on the front of my shirt. <laughs> you guys, you should feel really proud that I'm showing this to you, because... This is not a picture I want to show to a lot of people. Uh, so on the first day there, the project director asked each of us to share why we were there. I scrambled to think of an answer because I didn't think that revealing my crush to the entire group was a good idea. When everyone was looking at me, expecting an answer, I said the first thing that came to my mind, I want to be braver. And again, up until that point, I really didn't have a desire to be braver, so this was a very strange thing to say. The project director looked at me and replied, that's a dangerous request. If you ask God for courage, he's going to take you out of your comfort zone. And sure enough, those next two weeks 
were the roughest of my life. The first day out serving in the community, my team was sent to the home of an elderly woman. We were there to clean her dilapidated house and encourage her with our presence. As we approached the house, I noticed a slightly off smell. When we came inside, the woman was warm and welcoming and so grateful that we were there. I also noticed that the foul smell was getting a little bit stronger. We asked her what sort of work she would like for us to do, and she said, well, I'd love for you to clean my basement. My daughter used to live in the basement, and she kept 19 cats. This was hard for me to process. 19 cats? Not nine, although that would be bad enough. 19, one nine. You heard that right. Does anyone here have 19 cats? No, I can't imagine that you do. The elderly woman led us to the basement door, and that's when things started to get bad. She opened the door, and the most terrible smell I have ever smelled washed over me. Apparently, the woman's daughter had not cleaned up after her cat's waste. And when we walked down into the basement, there were snowdrifts of dried cat poop in the entire basement. I kid you not, there were drifts that went up past my knees. Now, I have no idea how the daughter could possibly have lived in this filth, and it's horrifying to think of the grandma who was breathing in the scent of this waste every single day. So there I was, with some rubber gloves, a shovel, some plastic bags, trying to shovel up dried cat poop, all because I had a crush on a guy. <laughs> Looking back, I think that this was not a safe condition. I'm pretty sure that it's not healthy to breathe in fumes of that quantity of cat feces. <laughs> but it never crossed our minds that we could refuse to help this woman. She was living over it. We had to get it out. But I couldn't take it for long. I have a sensitive stomach and a strong gag reflux. About half an hour into this, my worst nightmare happened. I couldn't take the smell anymore. And I vomited right there on the floor in front of all of these other students from schools around the country that I barely knew. I was so, so I mean, he, this is like the most embarrassing thing that I could imagine. I guess at least we had a lot of supplies to clean it up. But um, <laughs> This wasn't the kind of place that I had expected that Jesus would lead me. Instead of the ivory tower, Jesus led me into a basement full of cat poop. <laughs> and, and you know, this has been my story ever since. A story of downward rather than upward mobility. At this point, you might be wondering, why would I ever want this? Is this story supposed to encourage me or discourage me from following Jesus? And I want to be clear. Following Jesus isn't always easy. There is a cost to following him. Over those two weeks in Portland, I was confronted with my weakness, embarrassment, my fears, my inability to connect with people different from me. I was completely out of my comfort zone in a world that felt anything but clean. But you know what? I encountered joy, joy like I had never felt. Even though things didn't work out with that guy that I had a crush on, I encountered something even better, God's love. It's hard to describe, but something mysterious happened over those two weeks. As I stepped into the dirty, filthy places on the margins of our society, I encountered Jesus in a fresh way. I encountered God's love for the poor, but also for me. And his love for me didn't revolve around me being a good student or having my life all put together. I encountered a love that was deeper than I could have ever imagined. This began a journey of understanding my identity in Christ. 
And it didn't happen overnight, and to be honest, it's still going on. But out of this new identity, I realized I had the strength to love in ways that I never imagined. I had the strength to give up my need for cleanliness and control. Just like Peter, somehow I found myself being brave, one step at a time, as Jesus called me. By the time I graduated, I no longer had the dream of being a professor. God called me into urban ministry, and I had the privilege of working with college students and helping them encounter God in the city like I had as a student. It was rough. I didn't make much money. I worked several part-time jobs, one at an elementary school where many of the children were living below the poverty level and had experienced homelessness. One day, there was a shooting right out in front of the school, and the windows of the school had to be covered with butcher paper so that the kids couldn't see the police and the chalk outlines of the people who had been killed. This was the reality in that neighborhood. The freshman me would never have imagined that I could be brave enough to live in this world. But that's the power of Jesus. So now let's come back to Peter's story. When he, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and God and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is the command that Jesus gives to Peter and the disciples. Jesus is not saying, this is what you need to do to be saved. We could give up all of our possessions, give all of our money to the poor, but if we do it without love, it means nothing. Jesus is inviting his disciples to come along with him, to join in his work of service and love. He's calling them to come join him in the places where he has already gone. This is a gift to his disciples, and it's a gift to us. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them. Now let's go back to Mr. Lupton's corduroy chair. If you were wondering if Mrs. Smith ever was invited to sit on that treasured corduroy chair, good news, she was. Lupton shares, we did finally invite Mrs. Smith to have Sunday dinner in our home. And she did just as I feared she would. She went straight for my corduroy recliner. And it has never been the same. In fact, Mrs. Smith even joined a Bible study in our home the next week. Every Wednesday evening, she headed right to the chair. She even referred to it as her chair. I thank God for Mrs. Smith and the conflict she brings in me. In her, more clearly than in Sunday school lessons or sermons, I encounter the Christ of Scripture. It was a blessing for Robert Lupton and his family to invite Mrs. Smith into their home. And it's a blessing to get your hands dirty with Jesus. Jesus is offering us the same invitation that he gave Peter. Come follow me. Do you want to know my heart? It's with the poor, the marginalized, the lost, and that includes you. Stick with me, and I'll take you into messy places that you never wanted to go. 
but you will have the blessing of being with me and the joy of participating in my healing work in the world. Come follow me. Now I'd like for us to take a few minutes for reflection, first silently and then with a partner. Um, yeah, take some time to let God speak to you and what he wants to say in this. And so there's a slide up here with a couple of reflection questions. And the first one is, how do you sense Jesus is calling you to wash one another's feet and enter into the dirty places in our world? And this could be something that seems small, right? It was cat poop for me, but what is it for you? Maybe it's having a conversation with a roommate that you didn't want to have, um, doing a chore around the house that no one wants to do, or maybe it's getting involved in matters and causes that your friends care about or that communities, marginalized communities in our neighborhood care about, right? There's a lot that, this, that Jesus could be saying to you. And the second question is, what are the chairs in your life that you don't want other people to touch? Or another way of putting it, what might stop you from following this call to, the messy, to messy places and messy people? So I'll give you a couple minutes, reflect on it, pray, and then when you're ready, turn, grab a partner and share with them. And then I'll bring us back in a couple of minutes and pray to close us.